On this edition of Alberta Dugout Stories, the podcast, Ian Wilson stops by to talk about some of the things he's been working on, and we catch up with Edmonton's Eric Sabrowski. Welcome to episode 59 of Alberta Dugout Stories, the podcast. I'm Joe McFarland. It has been a long, long, long time since we had our own Ian Wilson as a guest on the podcast. He's been busy keeping us afloat, really, at the end of the day on albertadugoutstories.com, writing up every story imaginable left, right, and center, and certainly no shortage of things to talk about, so I thought we'd bring him back onto the podcast. Welcome back, Ian. Thank you for having me once again. Hey, let's start with the talk of the town in Calgary and, frankly, across Canada right now. Mike Soroka lights out in his first playoff start with the Atlanta Braves. You organized a bit of a shindig to mark the occasion and watch the game. Uh, let's walk through that game particularly, and what did you take away from that outing from Mike? A uh, very impressive outing, and anyone who uh, it, it, I kind of laughed heading into that game uh, oh, nerves! Is there, there going to be any nerves with Mike? Is he going to have the you know have any uh, issues with that? And uh, I I didn't expect that at all. And of course, he didn't display anything like that. And seven innings, two hits, and uh, you know one of those hits, just this little squiver from o- Ozuna that wasn't really much of a hit at all. No walks. Uh, you know, before the game even started, he was. Uh, making history as the youngest uh, Canadian uh, postseason starter ever, uh, one of just six Canadians to start in the postseason, and one of 20 pitchers, uh, Canadian pitchers to to start in the game. And uh, yeah, it's just a dominant performance. And you, as the game unfolded, of course they were down one nothing um, late in that game, and uh, you just kept thinking, man, like. He's retired 17 batters in a row. He's setting a Braves record, and 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 he's just doing all these phenomenal things. And it'd be a real shame if he if they couldn't find a way to win this game. And of course, uh, the Braves uh, did pull it out. Dansby Swanson was was great in that game, a shortstop for the Braves as well. And um, so it was just good to see, even though uh, Mike didn't pick up the the win. So for his, his his own personal record, the team got the win, which was was huge, and just a fun game to watch. Uh, great pitching duel between Adam Wainwright and, and and Mike Soroka. And it's funny how that playoff game really encapsulated how Mike's season went. I mean, you look at his numbers: thirteen and four and twenty nine starts, meaning twelve of those starts resulted in no decisions. And you can take that one of two ways: either he didn't get the run support. Or conversely, he ended up leaving games in a losing situation and Atlanta managed to come back. Yeah, and very good on the road, too. I can't remember the numbers off off the top of my head, but all, all season long you heard about his, uh, his uh, road uh, prowess and uh, I think he had an ERA under two. I think it was like 155 or something. Just something crazy um, that, uh, that, that, you know, that made him the ideal starter. To, to go to Bush Stadium for Game 3 and uh, and perform as well as he did. 
one of the things I've noticed now with the playoff race is that people are actually starting to pay attention to Mike Soroka and the Atlanta Braves and the hometown aspect of this. And suddenly, whether it's the media or bars are starting to play Braves games and playoff games, I mean, there's actually a little bit of a buy-in starting to happen the deeper we go into the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, playoffs always kind of bring that to a head, especially um, I think collectively the media for the most part, as much as they may grumble about baseball during the regular season, the pace of play or reviews or what have you, when you get to playoffs, uh, most uh, most people in the media um, think that the product is very good come come postseason time. And um, Mike's front and center in that right now, uh, so you get you get to <clears throat> really focus on on what he can do and what he's good at, and break down basically his entire season within one game, uh, which is uh, which is great to see. And it's good to see. I mean, I've been telling people all year, yep, it's uh, it's uh, you know Soroka Sunday or Soroka Saturday mm-hmm. or uh, you know Mike Soroka Monday, like whatever day of the week that he's in the rotation, it's must see TV. You got to get to a screen, got to find a way to watch him. Uh, uh, pitch and it was funny too that this this particular start fell on a Sunday and you mentioned uh, trying to get a group of uh, people together to watch this game out in a you know Calgary watering hole and of course what's on Sunday uh, afternoons but football NFL football and uh, hey can we get can we get the volume on the game <laughs> for for mm-hmm. this historic historic game <laughs> uh, well no we've got NFL football. So you are still kind of fighting some of that, uh, you know, institutional um, setups and structures mm-hmm. that are in place for for sports watching. But hopefully, uh, you know, I was saying after the game, the game three, like ideally he plays on, he pitches on like a Tuesday or a Wednesday night, and there's nothing, <laughs> nothing else on the tube, so you can actually have it on as many screens as possible and and take it in and, and really enjoy the uh, the theater that he provides. You've talked to a lot of people about uh, Mike's progression through the course of the year and what has impressed them the most about his uh, ascent to almost rookie of the year and Cy Young candidate worthy numbers. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's, I mean, his talent and his physical abilities are, are one thing, but the one kind of uh, constant that comes through with, with Mike is words like poise and maturity and uh, wisdom. He's uh, wise behind, beyond his years and, and um, just always prepared. He's always kind of looking ahead and, and not a, not a player that, um, you know, really, necessarily needs a, a lot of instruction meaning if you're a coach or or you know catcher in in Mike's world you're not having to impress upon him the importance of things he's kind of already there and he's already thinking of things and, and looking ahead to that and uh you know I think it obviously the relationship between uh, him and Chris Ritzma who um who mentored him at a, at a during his teenage years uh, was was incredibly helpful. Um, it was just a player that uh, a former MLB player who could say, "Here's what's important. Here's the priorities." And when Mike was ready to be serious about baseball, which he was in in those teenage years, um, he had someone he could hit up um, quite regularly about uh, what it what it took to have success at the major league level. 
It'll be interesting to see. And I mentioned the whole rookie of the year and Cy Young conversation after the postseason is over. And it's amazing to think how dominant he was on the mound. And yet he probably won't win either because of outstanding performances elsewhere. And I know it sounds kind of homerish from our standpoint, being the Alberta guys and wanting to cheer him on. But when you look at numbers from uh, Pete Alonso, for example, 53 home runs and 120 RBIs as a rookie hitting 260. That's not bad. And then when you look at some of the pitching performances out in the NL this year, and Mike's numbers are very good. They just might not quite be good enough. Yeah, and I don't expect him, uh, as much as I'd love to see it, I don't expect him to win either of those uh, major awards, um, which is unfortunate. It's got nothing really to do with with Mike or how he pitched. And I'm not sure he could have had a a better year. Mm -hmm. It's just... um, you mentioned Alonzo, and I think those are some gaudy numbers, and whether the the ball is juiced or not, um, he's just put together a, a fantastic season that uh, with eye-popping numbers, and I think Alonzo will probably win that. And uh, in the NL race, I think that's a little bit tighter, but I just don't think he's, he's quite got enough, especially for a guy who doesn't uh, typically throw out a lot of uh, strikeouts. Like mm-hmm. He doesn't rack those up to the same degree. So... Yeah, I, I don't think he'll he'll necessarily take those awards home, but I am really really curious to see what the voting looks like and and how that uh, breaks down and where he fits into all of that when it, when all is said and done. We'll be back with Ian in just a couple of minutes, but one of the storylines here in our province off the field has been the recuperation of Edmonton's Eric Sabrowski. He was a draft pick of San Diego in last year's draft, but after a workhorse summer, the Episode 7 guest underwent Tommy John surgery. Earlier this week, I caught up with him to see how things have gone and what his prognosis is going forward. Eric, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm uh, happy to be here. Episode 7 was the last time we chatted with you, and at that time you were pretty stoked about the year you were having, and you get drafted uh, by San Diego, and things are going very well, and then all of a sudden we get the news, hey, Eric's going through Tommy John surgery. How did you find out, and did you have a kind of a hint that you were going to have to do it at some point? Uh, so, so I knew something was wrong up in my elbow. I wasn't, you know, I, I had seen a bunch of doctors out in Kansas through school and no one could really give me a straight answer. And, and I wasn't, I, I knew, like I said, I knew something was wrong, but I wasn't, wasn't sure exactly what it was. I found out just about a month after I was in, uh, down in Arizona with the Padres, the, uh, the doctors came through and kind of had a quick chat and realized that uh that elbow wasn't getting any better with any of the treatment we were giving it so kind of just elected for surgery walk us through your thought process i guess after you found that out and you were going to go through surgery was there that moment of oh no or because you knew what was happening and you'd heard other players go through the same process that you were at least optimistic that you were going to get to the bottom of what was ailing you uh to be honest, I was crushed. No, uh, no kid dreams of starting their pro career sitting out for 16 months because you know they're injured. But uh, once I kind of got over that hump, it it real I realized that it was you know a, more than a year to get my body ready, get my mind ready to uh, you know go out and compete in a professional level. Walk us through the last year or so and, and the, the training protocols that you've gone through and what's the, the step-by-step process been like for you? 
Uh, well, the the early the early goings of the rehab progress pro process suck. They you do the same thing six days a week. You go in, you're trying to get your range of motion back on your elbow. You're trying to strengthen the forearm, the tricep areas around it to take pressure off of the actual elbow. And then, uh, so that that was five months before I even started throwing of just over and over, a lot of repetition. But once you start throwing, it, it flies by. You're constantly gaining new new distance every week, more throws, more intensity. And that, that becomes, you feel like a baseball player again, and, and then, you know, you get the fun back into it. What went through your mind when you finally were able to step on a mound and even if it was a short distance, be able to throw a baseball and have it in your hand again? Uh, it was, I was pretty nervous. Just, um, it had been, it had been a long time and, you know, you, you think about the previous nine months of your rehab and you think, did I do enough to be ready to step on a mound again and throw pitches and, and compete and, uh, it, like, I was nervous, but once I threw that first pitch, it was it was back to normal, business as usual. I know a lot of people, especially in football circles, talk about how knees and ankles can be a, a real challenge when you come back from an injury to those because you just don't know if you're going to be able to start and stop the same way. And I assume the same kind of holds true with baseball pitchers, is that this is your one piece of your body that needs to be a-okay and so is it a real challenge that way is to get over more the mental hump than the physical hump yeah the, the mental hump plays into it but that just that was something that I didn't want to allow myself to kind of play into I wanted to be at a point where I trusted the rehab process I trusted my trainers I trust my pitching coaches and trust myself and and my elbow that you know, it's uh, it's going to hold up and it's stronger than ever. And I've done the right things to put me in a spot where I can go out on a mound and and get better and uh, finish off the uh, the throwing program that I had and make strides in, uh, in the pitching side of things. Was there someone that you leaned on through this process or a story that you managed to see that went this is how it's going to go for me too? Or was there a, a, a trainer or a pitching coach that really gave you that that desire, that fire to make sure that you did come back the way you have? Well, our, uh, our rehab pitching coach, uh, his name's Ben Fritz. He, he is a longtime minor leaguer. He, he got surgery, or Tommy John, kind of soon after his college career ended and he got into the pros. So we had a few, we had many discussions actually about just kind of uh the the rehab process and kind of once you get back to throwing some things to look out for and he was a good um he's a good resource to use on my road back so the question then becomes how is it feeling now good good i uh i finally got got to face batters last week uh through 20 pitches to five batters and uh that's kind of uh, shutting it down for the season now. I'm going to take a two-month break and then resume throwing. I was going to ask about the, the future prognosis. Is what is your expectation? Have you talked to the Padres at all? Are you looking at different avenues that way? Or is it sort of a day-to-day a -day and week-to-week process that you're going through now? No, it'll be, I'll start playing catch again in December, stretch it out in January, and then um, I'll be heading down sometime in February before spring training to catch up on a few pens that I missed by going home. Yeah. And then, uh, then the goal is to 
have a good spring training and make a team out of camp. Fantastic stuff. Now, I know you're back home and uh, you've been kind of the attention of social media sphere as well because you've been chatting with uh, kids up in Edmonton as well. And what's been your main message to them as you've been going through this process? Just uh, any anything is possible, really. You, you know, you look at guys like Soroka and Matt Lloyd and, and me, we're all kind of three different situations. You know, Soroka, the first rounder out of high school. Matt Lloyd started in JUCO, but then ended up at a D1 and then me coming straight out of JUCO. It's there's the route is there. You just got to you got to put your work in and do do the little things that, you know, maybe you don't want to. But those those little things add up and it can put you in a good position to uh, succeed. How important is the mental game in the grand scheme of things in your mind? Oh, very very important. I, I can't quote that Yogi Berra quote off the top of my head, but it, uh, it's, it's way more than 50%. It is, you gotta, you gotta know what you're doing mentally to, uh, do it physically. What does it mean to you to have been asked by the crew up in Edmonton to come and speak to kids and to be able to be a bit of a role model for them as you go through your own journey as it's happening? It's, it's awesome. I, I used to be one of those kids when uh, I've been working with Taylor, Taylor Burns since I was 13. And just, I remember being a kid and listening to him talk, or he'd bring in one of his buddies, say Ethan Elias to come chat to us. And I remember being that kid and how important those sessions were for, for me. So it's, it's awesome to give back and be able to do that for these kids now. It's great to hear that you're on the up and up, Eric. Thanks so much for joining us in the podcast and all the best as you continue your journey in baseball. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Back now with our own Ian Wilson as we delve into more of what he's been working on at albertadugoutstories.com and your latest offering, Ian, dives into a really interesting point in baseball history, the Black Sox scandal and the connections here in Alberta. Walk us through what you found. Yeah, I, well, this is the centennial year of that uh, Black Sox scandal. Of course, when uh, the Chicago White Sox uh, were were found to have uh, fixed and then thrown the 1919 World Series, uh, uh, allowing the the Cincinnati Reds to to win the title. And um, you know, shortly after, uh, in 19 August of 1921. Um, uh, uh, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, the, the first baseball commissioner ever who was brought in to kind of clean up the mess. Uh, even though the players were acquitted in a, in a court of law, he uh, issued lifetime bans to, uh, to eight uh, White Sox players who, who later became known as the Black Sox. And uh, uh, of course, uh, the, the, the film Eight Men Out uh, was, was made about the whole scandal and a uh, very popular film. And uh, in the wake of that, too, there was uh, a lot of historians were kind of angry with how that uh, movie depicted things because uh, it wasn't entirely accurate. So there's been some some great uh, writing uh, about the the Black Sox scandal since that movie came out. And um, yeah, so I just kind of got to thinking one day. I was like, well, I wonder what uh, if if any of these guys found their way to Canada and sure enough um, there there were some players that uh, were looking to, to keep playing ball after they uh, got banned from MLB and um, you know lots of barnstorming tours uh, took place Shoeless Joe Jackson went down to the, the South Georgia League and won a championship down there playing for uh, $75 a week 
there was a ex major league stars tour that took place, uh, that included, um, included, uh, Oscar happy Felch, who is portrayed by, uh, Charlie Sheen in the movie, uh, eight men out, uh, Swede Reesberg and, um, Eddie Seacoat were, were all on that team. And, uh, Seacoat and, uh, and Swede Reesberg ended up getting in a, in a, bar brawl during that because uh eddie seacoat the the pitcher wanted uh advanced payment for the uh for the tour and uh swede uh, just kind of said forget about that and uh they ended up brawling and uh, eddie seacoat ended up going home taking his ball and going home uh so that kind of brought an, an end to his uh his barnstorming tour there uh and then uh later on uh, uh happy felch ended up uh playing in Montana and uh, did, did very well out there uh, and came north to Regina, Saskatchewan in 1927. Uh, so that, that kind of, that's kind of where it all started. And then, uh, yeah, did, did some more digging after that. Well, and the amazing thing is, is once you start digging, and I found this in a lot of the historic pieces that we've written, is you tend to go down rabbit holes. And then all of a sudden, what you think the storyline is turns into not quite the story that we end up writing because it took a turn that we weren't really expecting. And so were there any rabbit holes particularly that interested you that made you go, oh man, this is going to be a story that just keeps on giving? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are always those uh, kind of twists and turns and, and threads as you go through these things. And I, I kind of, as I mentioned, went went into this one wanting to see if any of these these Black Sox players uh, played any games in Alberta, which uh, I was able to find out that that um, Happy Felsch did uh, did end up playing, as I mentioned, playing and managing for the Regina Balmorals, and uh, he in 1927 he came to uh, to Calgary. He played in Players Home, Vermilion, High River, Edmonton, and uh, was still a very good uh, ball player. Uh, drew, drew very good crowds when they came to Calgary. They drew 4,000 fans. Uh, uh, and he was still very good uh, in the field. He's an outfielder who, who uh, was very accomplished and uh, steady glove. And his bat, uh, you know, he continued to hit very, very well in these semi-pro uh, games and uh, hit one of the longest home runs out of Mawada Stadium in Calgary and uh, also hit one of the longest home runs at drum heller as well and uh yeah and then later on he um uh, so he kind of bounced around a bit after uh playing for regina uh he ended up uh going back to montana and playing there and um ended up playing in a tournament uh with um uh, john donaldson who uh, very uh, well accomplished uh, Negro League star mm. who played for the Kansas City Monarchs, and um, so he's appeared in tournaments with a player like that. Uh, he ended up playing later on in Verdon, Manitoba. You know, big baseball hub. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> was which he actually made it into a baseball hub for Western Canada in uh, 1929 and 1930 when he played there. And, uh, you know, he had Honus Wagner, who, uh, who is very well known to baseball mm -hmm. fans for, uh, for not only being a Hall of Famer and the, being a Flying Dutchman and one of the best shortstops ever, but also for that uh, most expensive baseball card ever uh, ever made. Mm -hmm. um, so Honus Wagner was on his team, and, and Swede Riesberg ended up playing with him um, on that Verdon team as well. And I think what... Um, 
what really impressed me most was just this was a this was a guy that that could really play like you you could just see it in the uh in the box scores he was typically batting you know 500 or better each game uh with the uh, triples kind of here and there and then also lots of home runs you know he and and not just um not just home runs but the home runs where it was like this is the longest home run we've seen mm-hmm. in, in this community ever so that that kind of impressed me and uh uh yeah it's and also you know just thinking about what a what an interesting time to uh to have been able to see uh this player you know these guys weren't always welcomed when they barnstormed in certain areas uh there were um major league baseball often find players who played against or with um some members of the black Sox. so mm-hmm. it was hard for them to find games which is probably why he ended up coming so far north and and far away from his milwaukee home uh to to play but uh what an interesting time to be able to have seen such major league talent at that time as a fan you know paying 50 cents to get into uh <laughs> into Milwaukee mm-hmm. stadium or or diamond park in edmonton and, and see this kind of action and um you know in edmonton as well one of the, the pitchers that he faced was a guy named leroy goldsworthy struck out 20 batters in the in the series that he was playing against the Regina Bell Morals. And uh, he ended up playing in the NHL. Uh, he was a very good hockey player and uh, won the Stanley Cup with the Chicago Blackhawks in 1934. So, yeah, all kinds of twists and turns and uh, interesting, uh, as you mentioned, rabbit holes uh, with, with this story. Well, one of the things that it really highlights is just how popular the barnstorming tours were in Alberta and, frankly, across Western Canada. And, and uh, I remember hearing stories from you know my dad who relayed stories from uh, his dad about about you know going out to the ballparks of southern Alberta, whether it was Carmen Gay or Vulcan or Claire's Home or Stavely, and there were barnstorming spots, and there were pretty good uh, circuits all across southern Alberta, frankly. And and even you mentioned Vermilion, the Lloydminster area was pretty big for baseball too. And so again, there's some more rabbit holes that we're going to be uh, probably diving through as we continue to watch Alberta dugout stories evolve the way it has. Yeah, and one thing I always find interesting, or one thing I always uh, often try to do, is is put the story in a modern context where where possible. So, I kept thinking, you know, you know, Hap Felch and uh, Sweet Reesberg playing in Western Canada. What would the modern day equivalent of that be? Yeah. And uh, there, there are some actually. There's some shades of Jose Canseco coming up here. I think you know uh, when Canseco played. Uh, for the Yuma Scorpions against right. the Vipers, he had did just—he was a fairly disgraced player because of the the juiced book that he wrote and mm-hmm. outed all these steroid uh, steroid taking players. So, and he definitely uh, heard his share of of heckling and, and booing. But uh, you know, in the newspaper reports I found of of uh, Felsch, you never you never really saw too much in terms of. Uh, you know, reporters questioning him about the Black Sox or him being heckled or booed. It just seemed like people were embracing the baseball and, and the skill that he had. But uh, yeah, and then you know, I think too, like, would this be like uh, if if Barry Bonds were was to have been uh, actually busted for, <laughs> for mm-hmm. steroids and somehow he ended up playing in Calgary of all places? Is that a, a 
comparable to what we saw with these Black Sox players coming through. I, I don't know. I, like it's 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 interesting to think about uh, about that and and also I. I did end up thinking too, just about uh, you think about gambling in baseball, and and um, it was very pervasive at that in that nineteen nineteen series. Obviously, it was, that's when things came to a head. But there was rumors of uh, uh, nineteen seventeen World Series, which the White Sox won, of them paying their opponents to win that World mm-hmm. Series. And there's a long history of of, of gaming in that sport prior to that and and afterwards of course and you know it kind of when you have those debates about pete rose and and gambling and his place in in baseball history and hall of fame uh i think if you're going to have that debate you really should look into the history of the of the black Sox and uh, get some context as to why uh, gambling in baseball is uh so frowned upon and uh, you know, there's a, a historical context that's very important with P. Rose debate. That's not just how many hits did he get and how good was he, and uh, it, it kind of shades your your impressions of of what what was later to come with P. Rose. It is really amazing to look back on, and we're going to continue to dive into some of the historical stories as we go into the colder months of the year here in Alberta. Clearly, uh, we're slowing down a little bit, I think, in terms of the amount of stuff that you're going to be seeing on albertadugoutstories.com, but when we do post stuff, you're going to know it's going to be a little bit more thorough, a little less uh, a little less on the current side of baseball, I think, and more along the lines of some of the things that we've seen over the years. And we're going to have a little bit of fun as well. We've talked to a little bit, Ian, about doing a baseball card uh, series of sorts. So we'll, we'll might surprise a few of our followers uh, in the days, weeks, and a uh, couple of months ahead as we go towards the new year. One of the other stories I've been working on and speaking of diving into the past has been Alberta's connection to the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. And we did write the story a while back about Helen Nickel Fox and everybody knows about Betty Carveth Dunn, Dunn as well as she just passed away in the last couple of years as well believe it or not there are 10 Albertans who went stateside to go play in the All-American Girls League two of which though not a lot is known about them Olga Grant and Marjorie Hanna both from Calgary and we've kind of gone down a bit of a rabbit hole so that's one of the stories that we're looking, maybe if you happen to be listening, know of maybe descendants of Olga Grant and Marjorie Hanna, by all means, drop us a line. Who knows what we might be able to find out. So we'll be digging into that and, of course, much, much more. Uh, But that's going to put a wrap on this episode of the podcast. Ian, thanks so much for joining us as always. Thank you for having me on and uh, keep up the great work on the podcast as well. It's been fun tuning into that and listening to that and uh, you're doing a, a fantastic job with that. Yeah, tip of the cap as well to you, my friend, for everything that you've been writing and like I said at the very beginning keeping us afloat on the online side of things and a big thank you as well to all of you for downloading and listening to the podcast. Of course, you can listen in on four major platforms, they being Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and now of course Spotify. Until next time, thanks again for all of your support of Alberta Dugout Stories.